So we're in a series on the book of Philemon. Good luck trying to find it, um, but I'd encourage you to look for it. It's in the New Testament. It is after Titus. It is, if you want to know, in the New Testament, we have Paul's letters, and we have them in order of size. So Romans coming first, and then kind of descending order through Corinthians, all the way down to Titus, and then Philemon. Philemon would be the last letter attributed to Paul. We're in a, in, in a series that is intentionally trying to dig into a book and be expository. Uh, if you don't know, there's different ways to preach. There's different ways churches approach it. But uh, there is topical in some ways what, what Paul did when he preached. In a lot of ways what Jesus did when he preached. And then there is kind of book study wise or expository where you go through a book and try and dig into it and get beneath it. Now, we've always landed kind of in the middle, that on either extreme, you lose the, the ability, the flexibility to talk about what God is doing maybe in your community when you have kind of a formula that you're sticking to. But if you stick to topics for too long, pretty soon the danger is, are we learning about scripture or the text or the bigger story by leaning into books. And so one of the things we're wanting to do in this series and then some of the things we're gonna be doing over the next year is to really dig into some of these texts and get underneath them. Philemon, uh, uh, Pete introed it last week, but just kind of recapping, especially for the people that might not have been here last week, is the, the third shortest book in the New Testament behind second and third John. Um, it is... One of the most interesting, because in, in many respects, it's a private letter between private individuals that, that Paul is dealing with, yet in a couple places, especially the closing, um, he asks uh, in the Greek for the broad sense of our prayer. So verse 22, one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you. This you is you all. So in dealing with a private matter, that, that Paul is kind of mediating between two Christian brothers. He sets up a context in where it's also about the whole church. And I'll get into that in just a second. By the way, um, I asked Ben to play piano behind this whole 20-minute sermon that I'm going to try and rush through. And um, if I was sitting out there, uh, I would be thinking this. I'd be thinking, that's pretty cheesy and inauthentic. Um, because my default to everything in life is that it's inauthentic, um, if you've ever hung out with me. Um, and you'd be wrong, but um, it's not inauthentic because I've actually never done it before. I've, I've never had anybody play any music behind me um, because that's inauthentic. Um, so I, you, know, you know where I'm going. But so uh, you're going to see Ben here. It's not an accident. It's not like he just wandered on the stage and someone needs to grab Ben. What's he doing there? Doesn't he know it's sermon time? Um, he's, he's actually there um, creating soundtrack. Uh, so, um, so as we look at this interesting thing, we start in Philemon, and, and Paul is writing, and it's an interesting thing because a couple people are named here. It's Philemon, and then also Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and then the church. So you can have four audience uh, audiences, the church that meets in your home. The debates have gone back and forth. Is this a church that meets in Archippus's home or is this a church that meets in Philemon's home? And kind of the priority of the sentence is the first person 
kind of the, the, the person of priority in, in the, the sequence of names, or is it the last? And the majority view is, is really that it's Philemon's home, and that this is also being addressed to Philemon, somebody that's probably of means, somebody that's probably of privilege, because he owned or had a slave, and the slave he had was, was a slave by the name of Onesimus. And so Onesimus, if we read through it, I'm going to do it very quickly because it gives us the context. Um, we see that this is addressed to these people. We get the greeting. And then verse 4, it says, I always thank my God as I remember you, singular. So now Paul begins to move to talking to one person, even though the framing of the beginning and the end is about a whole community. It gets private here, and he begins to talk about remembering these people or, or this person as prayer and the partnership that you've had with us and that your love that has given me joy. But in Christ, verse 8, I'm going to be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Um, although that I can order you and be bold to do what you ought to do, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. And you kind of begin to, to wonder, what is Paul digging into here? And, and he's being a bit direct and confrontive. It is, as none, uh, it, is, it is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. So what's the interesting thing going on here? Paul is an old man, uh, either in chains in the city of Ephesus on his way to Rome, but the majority view is that he's probably in Rome in chains. And in Rome, he would write the book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians. Um, I wondered what was going on, and then I remembered that I asked for that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so... So you picture this old man in the early 60s, AD 60, and it's shortly before Paul's going to lose his life, a matter of a year or two or so, and he's got somebody that's with him. And if you remember from Paul's letters in Titus, Timothy, elsewhere, most of his friends begin to abandon him or at least don't come with him as he's in chains. It becomes very difficult. It becomes threatening. It becomes scary. And so he usually has a small circle of people that'll come with him. And he begins to get lonely and he begins to ask for things like his cloak and his, his scrolls so that he can study. And one person that's with him is a former slave uh, or a runaway slave, really, uh, a slave that is no longer where he's supposed to be or with his master. And this person is ministering to and is now a friend. Paul refers to him as a son, um, that this person's important to Paul. And this important person that God has brought into Paul's life, Paul now is sending him with a letter back to where he was from, to his former master, if you will. And that letter is basically saying, take this person, do the right thing, and set him free. And, and I could order you to do this, but I'm appealing to you on the basis of love. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains with the gospel. In other words, there's a lot of good Christians out there, a lot of Christians of privilege, a lot of people in their own city holding meetings in their homes, but there's very few people that are with me. And I could um, have asked that you come instead, but, but he's in some ways taking your place. 
but I did not want to do anything without your consent to keep him here so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but that it would be voluntary. Paul is the apostle of grace. We talk a lot about duty in the church, but for Paul, it was grace. It was always grace. We talk about the law to remind what, what the guardrails or the boundaries that, that, that are kind of supposed to be there. But ultimately, it's grace that shapes us and enables us to walk as we ought to walk. And this is what Paul's reminding him. Perhaps the reason he was separated from, from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. You see, justice, this, this conversation that Micah was teaching us all on about race is built on the idea that we belong to each other. That when um, Cain asks God, am I my brother's keeper? That the, the, the whole of the ethics of, of Scripture from that moment on is this implied reality that God was nodding his head and saying, yes, you, you are your brother's keeper. You belong to each other. I am the father of all who are in my family. I am the creator of all who are made in my image that, that there should be no division, but you should be one. That's why Jesus prayed that we would have unity you, you get one prayer, one wish. I mean, the genie in the bottle, you get one wish. You guys know what my wish would be. It would be for more wishes. But if, if, that, if that couldn't happen, then you wish for the greatest thing, right? The hardest thing, the thing that you can't do in your own strength. And, and when Jesus prays in John 17, he's got a little bit of time on the top of a hill to pray. He's going to pray for the hardest thing, the thing that he hopes for the most, Right? And the thing that he prays for, that he labors over, is this idea of unity. That as you and I are one, Father, that they may be one. I had somebody very close to me, um, flesh and blood, lived in this town that I hadn't talked to in five years. And I had to march over there just a couple weeks ago because it was crazy that I had not told them what had offended me and even asked forgiveness for what was keeping me from bridging that gap. Unity is hard. But this is, this is what's going on. That you have this opportunity through grace, Philemon, to take this guy as a brother, to release him from his bonds, to see him as equal, to see him as someone you can learn from, that has a voice, that has dignity, that has experience that you lack, that can teach you about the sufferings of Christ in ways that you'll never fully understand, possibly. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Um, the, the slave society, anti-slave society that came out of England in the late 1700s, early 1800s with William Wilberforce, and we, we know that story kind of well, the history of the abolitionists. They had a coin that had a man kneeling down, praying to God with chains on. And, and the slogan was, and I might get it backwards, but it was, am I not a man and a brother? Um, it's possible that am I, am I not a brother and a man? But the, the slogan said this, that can't you, can you not see who I am or ought to be to you? 
And in seeing that, those with the Spirit of God in them have to empathize and recognize that the systems, the structures, the power, the relational makeup has to change, even if it's hard, so that we have unity, what Jesus prayed for. So I'm going to switch with my, my few minutes remaining, and I just want to dive into the perspective of Onesimus. Um, Onesimus is with Paul. He's found a mentor. He's ostensibly free, at least physically free. He's in a community where he's valued, where he's respected, where he's an equal, where he's able to speak into things, where he's growing. And now Paul comes to him and Paul says, hey, um, I'm calling you to something. I'm calling you to go back to your former slave owner so that he can set you free legally, so that he can set you free verbally, so that he can set you free relationally, so that the memory of that relationship is no longer of a power differential or something that you ran away from, but it's now of Christian community, of unity. And so Paul asked this guy, I'm calling you in the name of Christ to submit yourself back into this story, trusting other Christians, trusting the church, trusting that, that somehow God will work that out in faith, but, but you have no guarantees. Um, so here's, here's the story. What is God calling you back into as a Christian as the Holy Spirit moves in your life or my life even today what relationship what past transgression what unhealed anything what difficult issue you've been ignoring what area where you just refuse to trust other Christians or to believe that the church can actually receive you in grace and bring healing where you are so scared to come back together. Donna Barber, who I was with this week, uh, Donna and Leroy are such good friends. She was showing me a text. I have it on the screen. Her daughter um, had sent her. And so her granddaughter and then uh, their two adopted kids, uh, her oldest daughter, Jessica, had given them an assignment because she's kind of watching them for the week. And you might not be able to read it, but I wanted you to see that it was a text. And she said, I gave the kids an assignment. They all have to work together and to create a play. It can be about anything they want. They just have to teach a lesson within the story and wear costumes. I gave them the assignment three days ago. Let's just say there's been tears and arguments and everyone trying to take over. They've come up with many reasons why it's just not going to work. And I wonder if this is how God feels when he's listening to us bicker and whine. Lots of laugh. LOL. I think that's what it means. Lots of laugh. <laughs> or lots of, anyways. LOL. Unfortunately for them, I won't let them quit. Um, stand, stand by, you know, for more text updates. Um, Boy, that's the picture, isn't it? God's asked us to put on a play and to wear costumes and to have Ben play the soundtrack and, and to somehow come together and to work it out. 
And it's not hard because I won't submit to you and you won't submit to me. And, and you know what? We're all really afraid that if we fully lean in, that we're going to somehow fall, that no one's going to catch us, that it's going to go wrong, that we might be taken advantage of because you know what? All of us have suffered church abuse and spiritual abuse or just plain abuse in the name of Christians. And if Michael won't quit, then how can I quit on the church? because we're all gonna grow into this thing or we're not gonna grow into it at all. We're all gonna have to learn to trust or the play isn't gonna happen. And Paul is basically saying to Onesimus and to us, have you ever, just raise your hand, have you ever felt like what you're going through, your felt experience does not show up in the Bible? Guess what? Like Philemon, the book we always overlook, this little book, this forgotten book, this book that's kind of private, yet also to a community, this book that just doesn't contain anything of theology. This book is here for us when we feel like nothing else is speaking to our experience of faith. That's Philemon talking to us, Onesimus, saying there's a calling. And do we trust God enough? Can we trust that even if Christians or the church don't get us, that somehow God will still have us, that God will still hold us, that God somehow ultimately can reward those who walk by faith, even if other people fail? Um, so I, I just invite you to stand. I'm going to try and bring this home, but, and I'll, I'll close my eyes because it's really not at all about whether I'm standing alone or with anyone else, but I am walking out my own faith where God is calling me to go into places where I have to trust and where it feels scary and where I can, I can project forward the ways in which it can go wrong, the ways in which other people have hurt me in the past or disappointed me in the past or taken advantage of me in the past, and I can, I can see how that could happen in this situation. So I wonder, can I do it again? Do I have the energy to trust Paul in this? Do I have the desire for grace to win out, for unity to win out, or would I rather play it safe? Like my friend Jenny Yang just said this week, that it's no longer riches or success that's the prosperity gospel in America, but it's, it's safety and comfort. It's security and comfort that has become the new prosperity gospel. This thing that we think God has somehow promised that we're going to worship because we are so afraid that we're gonna walk into it and lose our security and our comfort. But Onesimus and us with him in the canon of scripture have this message of walking in and this promise that if we do, we might receive back a better inheritance, that people might actually catch us, that great, grace might actually win, that we might actually become brothers and sisters and know the full power of God in this church or in this city or in our family and that somehow that's worth moving towards, knowing that God walks with us into those places that when we come in just a little bit to do communion, we know that Jesus walked into broken places, that his body was broken for us, that somehow we can trust somebody who has gone ahead of us and calls us to follow, even if it's scary. Because we have a sure hope because of the res uh, resurrection, because of the Holy Spirit that is a deposit within us, 
So Father God, as you bring out Brother Micah, Prophet Micah, to speak to us again, may our hearts be tender. May we not hold back in fear and to justify it because of the failings of other people or the weaknesses of other people. But would we look to you and actually somehow have an ounce of faith to trust into your hands we commit our spirits, knowing that it's not in our strength that we can do any of this, just like Jesus couldn't walk a broken path on his own strength, but he prayed to you that you would carry him through it. And for the joy set before the cross, he then endured. Father, receive us now. We, your people, your children, longing to be together, but fearing so much the scary parts of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.